Chapter Two of American Notes. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. American Notes by Charles Dickens. Chapter Two The Passage Out. We all dined together that day and a rather formidable party we were, no fewer than eighty-six strong. The vessel being pretty deep in the water, with all her coals on board and so many passengers, and the weather being calm and quiet, there was but little motion, so that before the dinner was half over, even those passengers who were most distrustful of themselves plucked up amazingly, and those who in the morning had returned to the universal question, "'Are you a good sailor?' A very decided negative now either parried the inquiry with the evasive reply, "'Oh, I suppose I'm no worse than anybody else,' or, reckless of all moral obligations, answered boldly, "'Yes,' and some irritation, too, as though they would add, "'I should like to know what you see in me, sir, particularly to justify suspicion.' Notwithstanding this high tone of courage and confidence, I could not but observe that very few remained long over their wine, and that everybody had an unusual love of the open air, and that the favourite and most coveted seats were invariably those nearest to the door. The tea-table, too, was by no means as well attended as the dinner-table, and there was less whist-playing than might have been expected. Still, with the exception of one lady, who had retired with some precipitation at dinner-time, immediately after being assisted to the finest cut of a very yellow boiled leg of mutton with very green capers there were no invalids as yet and walking and smoking and drinking of brandy and water but always in the open air went on with unabated spirit until eleven o'clock or thereabouts when turning in no sailor of seven hours experience talks of going to bed became the order of the night perpetual tramp of boot-heels on the decks gave place to a heavy silence, and the whole human freight was stowed away below, excepting a very few stragglers like myself, who were probably, like me, afraid to go there. To one unaccustomed to such scenes, this is a very striking time on shipboard. Afterwards, and when its novelty had long worn off, it never ceased to have a peculiar interest and charm for me. The gloom through which the great black mass holds its direct and certain course, the rushing water plainly heard but dimly seen, the broad, white, glistening track that follows in the vessel's wake, the men on the lookout forward, who would be scarcely visible against the dark sky, but for their blotting out some score of glistening stars, the helmsman at the wheel with the illuminated card before him, shining a speck of light amidst the darkness, like something sentient and of divine intelligence, the melancholy sighing of the wind through block and rope and chain, the gleaming forth of light from every crevice, nook, and tiny piece of glass about the decks, as though the ship were filled with fire in hiding, ready to burst through any outlet, wild with its resistless power of death and ruin. At first, too, and even when the hour and all the objects it exalts have come to be familiar, 
it is difficult, alone and thoughtful, to hold them to their proper shapes and forms. They change with a wandering fancy, assume the resemblance of things left far away, put on the well-remembered aspect of favourite places dearly loved, and to even people them with shadows. Streets, houses, rooms, figures so like their usual occupants, that they have startled me by their reality, which far exceeded, as it seemed to me, all power of mind to conjure up the absent, have, many and many a time, at such an hour, grown suddenly out of objects with whose real look and use and purpose I was as well acquainted as with my own two hands. My own two hands and feet likewise, being very cold, however, on this particular occasion, I crept below at midnight. It was not exactly comfortable below. It was decidedly close, and it was impossible to be unconscious of the presence of that extraordinary compound of strange smells, which is to be found nowhere but on board ship, and which is such a subtle perfume that it seems to enter at every pore of the skin and whisper of the hold. Two passengers' wives, one of them my own, lay already in silent agonies on the sofa, and one lady's maid, my lady's, was a mere bundle on the floor, execrating her destiny, and pounding her curl-papers among the stray-boxes. Everything sloped the wrong way, which in itself was an aggravation scarcely to be borne. I had left the door open a moment before, in the bosom of a gentle declivity, and, when I turned to shut it, it was on the summit of a lofty eminence. Now every plank and timber creaked, as if the ship were made of wicker-work, and now crackled, like an enormous fire of the driest possible twigs. There was nothing for it but bed, so I went to bed. It was pretty much the same for the next two days, with a tolerably fair wind and dry weather. I read in bed, but to this hour I don't know what, a good deal, and reeled on deck a little, drank cold brandy and water with an unspeakable disgust, and ate hard biscuit perseveringly, not ill, but going to be. It is the third morning. I am awakened out of my sleep by a dismal shriek from my wife, who demands to know whether there is any danger. I rouse myself and look out of bed. The water jug is plunging and leaping like a lively dolphin. All the smaller articles are afloat except my shoes, which are stranded on a carpet-bag, high and dry like a couple of coal-barges. Suddenly I see them spring into the air, and behold the looking-glass, which is nailed to the wall, sticking fast upon the ceiling. At the same time the door entirely disappears, and a new one is opened in the floor. Then I begin to comprehend that the state-room is standing on its head. Before it is possible to make any arrangement at all compatible with this novel state of things, the ship writes, before one can say, thank heaven, she wrongs again. Before one can cry she is wrong, she seems to have started forward, and to be a creature actually running of its own accord, with broken knees and failing legs, through every variety of hole and pitfall, and stumbling constantly. Before one can so much as wonder, she takes a high leap into the air. Before she has well done that, she takes a deep dive into the water. Before she has gained the surface, she throws a somerset. The instant she is on her legs she rushes backward, 
and so she goes on staggering, heaving, wrestling, leaping, diving, jumping, pitching, throbbing, rolling, and rocking, and going through all these movements, sometimes by turns, and sometimes altogether, until one feels disposed to roar for mercy. A steward passes. Steward! Sir! What is the matter? What do you call this? Rather a heavy sea on, sir, and a headwind. A headwind. Imagine a human face upon the vessel's prow, with fifteen thousand Samsons in one bent upon driving her back, and hitting her exactly between the eyes whenever she attempts to advance an inch. Imagine the ship herself, with every pulse and artery in her huge body, swollen and bursting under this maltreatment, sworn to go on or die. Imagine the wind howling, the sea roaring, the rain beating, all in furious array against her. Picture the sky both dark and wild, and the clouds in fearful sympathy with the waves, making another ocean in the air. Add to all this the clattering on deck and down below, the tread of hurried feet, the loud hoarse shouts of seamen, the gurgling in and out of water through the scuppers, with, every now and then, the striking of a heavy sea upon the planks above, with the deep, dead, heavy sound of thunder heard within a vault, and there is the headwind of that January morning. I say nothing of what may be called the domestic noises of the ship, such as the breaking of glass and crockery, the tumbling down of stewards, the gambols overhead of loose casks and truant dozens of bottled porter, and the very remarkable and far from exhilarating sounds raised in their various staterooms by the seventy passengers who were too ill to get up to breakfast. I say nothing of them, for although I lay listening to this concert for three or four days, I don't think I heard it for more than a quarter of a minute, at the expiration of which term I lay down again excessively seasick. Not seasick be it understood in the ordinary acceptation of the term, I wish I had been, but in a form which I have never seen or heard described, though I have no doubt it is very common. I lay there all the day long quite coolly and contentedly, with no sense of weariness, with no desire to get up or get better or take the air, with no curiosity or care or regret of any sort or degree, saving that I think I can remember in this universal indifference having a kind of lazy joy, a fiendish delight, if anything so lethargic can be dignified with the title, in the fact of my wife being too ill to talk to me. If I may be allowed to illustrate my state of mind by such an example, I should say that I was exactly in the condition of the elder Mr. Willet, after the incursion of the rioters into his bar at Chigwell. Nothing would have surprised me. If, in momentary illumination of any ray of intelligence that may have come upon me in the way of thoughts at home, a goblin postman with a scarlet coat and bell had come into that little kennel before me, broad awake in broad day, and apologising for being damp through walking in the sea, had handed me a letter directed to myself in familiar characters, I am certain I should not have felt one atom of astonishment. I should have been perfectly satisfied. If Neptune himself had walked in with a toasted shark on his trident, I should have looked upon the event as one of the very commonest everyday occurrences. Once, once, I found myself on deck. 
I don't know how I got there, or what possessed me to go there, but there I was, and completely dressed, too, with a huge pea-coat on, and a pair of boots such as no weak man in his senses could ever have got into. I found myself standing, when a gleam of consciousness came upon me, and holding on to something. I don't know what. I think it was the boatswain, or it may have been the pump, or possibly the cow. I can't say how long I had been there, whether a day or a minute. I recollect trying to think about something, about anything in the in the wide, about anything in the whole wide world. I was not particular, without the smallest effect. I could not even make out which was the sea and which the sky, for the horizon seemed drunk and was flying wildly about in all directions. Even in that incapable state. However, I recognized the lazy gentleman standing before me, nautically clad in a suit of shaggy blue with an oilskin hat. But I was too imbecile, although I knew it to be he, to separate him from his dress, and tried to call him, I remember, Pilot. After another interval of total unconsciousness, I found he had gone, and recognized another figure in its place. It seemed to wave and fluctuate before me, as though I saw it reflected in an unsteady looking-glass. But I knew it for the captain, and such was the cheerful influence of his face that I tried to smile. Yes, even then I tried to smile. I saw by his gesture that he addressed me, but it was a long time before I could make out that he remonstrated against my standing up to my knees in water, as I was. Of course, I don't know why. I tried to thank him, but couldn't. I could only point to my boots, or wherever I supposed my boots to be, and say in a plaintive voice, "'Cork souls!' at the same time endeavouring, I am told, to sit down in the pool. Finding that I was quite insensible, and for the time a maniac, he humanely conducted me below. There I remained until I got better, suffering whenever I was recommended to eat anything, an amount of anguish only second to that which is said to be endured by the apparently drowned in the process of restoration to life. One gentleman on board had a letter of introduction to me from a mutual friend in London. He sent it below with his card on the morning of the headwind, and I was long troubled with the idea that he might be up and well in a hundred times a day expecting me to call upon him in the saloon. I imagined him one of those cast-iron images, I will not call them men, who ask with red faces and lusty voices what seasickness means, and whether it really is as bad as it is represented to be. This was very torturing indeed, and I don't think I ever felt such perfect gratification and gratitude of heart as I did when I heard from the ship's doctor that he had been obliged to put a large mustard poultice on that very gentleman's stomach. I date my recovery from the receipt of that intelligence. It was materially assigned, though, I have no doubt, by a heavy gale of wind, which came slowly up at sunset, when we were about ten days out, and raged with gradually increasing fury until morning, saving that it lulled for an hour a little before midnight. There was something in the unnatural response of that hour, and in the awful gathering of the storm, so inconceivably awful and tremendous, that its bursting into full violence was almost a relief. 
The labouring of the ship in the troubled sea on this night I shall never forget. Will it ever be worse than this, was a question I had often heard asked, when everything was sliding and bumping about, and when it certainly did seem difficult to comprehend the possibility of anything afloat being more disturbed, without toppling over and going down. But what the agitation of a steam-vessel is, on a bad winter's night in the wild Atlantic, it is impossible for the most vivid imagination to conceive. To say that she is flung down on her side in the waves, with her masts dipping into them, and that, springing up again, she rolls over on the other side, until a heavy sea strikes her with the noise of a hundred great guns, and hurls her back, that she stops and staggers, and shivers, as though stunned, and then, with a violent throbbing at her heart, darts onward like a monster goaded into madness to be beaten down and battered, and crushed, and leapt on by the angry sea, that thunder, lightning, hail, and rain, and wind, are all in fierce contention for the mastery, that every plank has its groan, every nail its shriek, and every drop of water in the great ocean its howling voice is nothing. To say that all is grand, and all appalling, and horrible to the last degree, is nothing. Words cannot express it. Thoughts cannot convey it. Only a dream can call it up again in all its fury, rage, and passion. And yet, in the very midst of these terrors, I was placed in a situation so exquisitely ridiculous, that even then I had a strong sense of its absurdity as I have now, and could no more help laughing than I can at any other comical incident, happening under circumstances the most favourable to its enjoyment. About midnight we shipped a sea, which forced its way through the skylights, burst open the doors above, and came raging and roaring down into the lady's cabin, to the unspeakable consternation of my wife, and a little Scotch lady, who, by the way, had previously sent a message to the captain by the stewardess, requesting him, with her compliments, to have a steel conductor immediately attached to the top of every mast and to the chimney, in order that the ship might not be struck by lightning. They and the handmaid before mentioned being in such ecstasies of fear that I scarcely knew what to do with them, I naturally bethought myself of some restorative or comfortable cordial, and nothing better occurring to me at the moment than hot brandy and water, I procured a tumblerful without delay. It being impossible to stand or sit without holding on, they were all heaped together in one corner of a long sofa, a fixture extending entirely across the cabin, where they clung to each other in momentary expectation of being drowned. When I approached this place with my specific, and was about to administer it with many consolatory expressions to the nearest sufferer, what was my dismay to see them all roll slowly down to the other end? And when I staggered to that end, and held up the glass once more, how immensely baffled were my good intentions by the ship giving another lurch, and they're all rolling back again. I suppose I dodged them up and down this sofa for at least a quarter of an hour without reaching them once, and by the time I did catch them, the brandy and water was diminished by constant spilling to a teaspoonful. To complete the group, it is necessary to recognize, in this disconcerted dodger, an individual very pale from seasickness, who had shaved his beard and brushed his hair last at Liverpool, 
and whose only article of dress, linen not included, were a pair of dreadnought trousers, a blue jacket, formerly admired upon the Thames at Richmond, no stockings, and one slipper. Of the outrageous antics performed by that ship next morning, which made bed a practical joke, and getting up by any process short of falling out an impossibility, I say nothing. But anything like the utter dreariness and desolation that met my eyes when I literally tumbled up on deck at noon I never saw. Ocean and sky were all of one dull, heavy, uniform, lead colour. There was no extent of prospect, even over the dreary waste that lay around us, for the sea ran high, and the horizon encompassed us like a larger black hoop. Viewed from the air or some tall bluff on shore, it would have been imposing and stupendous, no doubt, but seen from the wet and rolling decks it only impressed one giddily and painfully. In the gale of last night the lifeboat had been crushed by one blow of the sea like a walnut-shell, and there it hung, dangling in the air, a mere faggot of crazy boards. The planking of the paddle-boxes had been torn sheer away. The wheels were exposed and bare, and they whirled and dashed their spray about the decks at random. Chimney, white with crusted sail, topmasts struck, storm-sails set, rigging all knotted, tangled, wet, and drooping. A gloomier picture it would be hard to look upon. I was now comfortably established by courtesy in the ladies' cabin, where, besides ourselves, there were only four other passengers. First, the little Scotch lady before mentioned, on her way to join her husband at New York, who had settled there three years before. Secondly and thirdly, an honest young Yorkshireman connected with some American house, domiciled in that same city, and carrying thither his beautiful young wife, to whom he had been married but a fortnight, and it was the fairest specimen of a comely English country girl I have ever seen. Fourthly, fifthly, and lastly, another couple. Newly married, too, if one might judge from the endearments they frequently interchanged, of whom I know no more than that they were rather a mysterious, runaway kind of couple, that the lady had great personal attractions also, and that the gentleman carried more guns with him than Robinson Crusoe, wore a shooting-coat, and had two great dogs on board. On further consideration, I remember that he tried hot-roast pig and bottled ale as a cure for seasickness, and that he took these remedies, usually in bed, day after day with astonishing perseverance. I may add, for the information of the curious, that they decidedly failed. The weather, continuing obstinately and almost unprecedentedly bad, we usually straggled into this cabin, more or less faint and miserable, about an hour before noon, and lay down on the sofas to recover, during which interval the captain would look in to communicate the state of the wind, the moral certainty of its changing to-morrow, the weather is always going to improve to-morrow at sea, the vessel's rate of sailing, and so forth. Observations there were none to tell us of, for there was no sun to take them by but a description of one day will serve for all the rest. Here it is. The captain being gone, we compose ourselves to read, if the place be light enough, and if not, we doze and talk alternately. At one, a bell rings, and the stewardess comes down with a steaming dish of baked potatoes, and another of roasted apples, and plates of pig's face, cold ham, salt beef, or perhaps a smoking mess of rare hot collops.
We fall to upon these dainties, eat as much as we can, we have great appetites now, and are as long as possible about it. If the fire will burn, it will sometimes. We are pretty cheerful. If it won't, we all remark to each other that it's very cold, rub our hands, cover ourselves with coats and cloaks, and lie down again to doze, talk, and read, provided as aforesaid, until dinner-time. At five, another bell rings, and the stewardess reappears with another dish of potatoes, boiled this time, and store of hot meat of various kinds, not forgetting the roast pig to be taken medicinally. We sit down at table again, rather more cheerfully than before, prolong the meal with a rather mouldy dessert of apples, grapes, and oranges, and drink our wine and brandy and water. The bottles and glasses are still upon the table, and the oranges and so forth are rolling about according to their fancy and the ship's way, when the doctor comes down by special nightly invitation to join our evening rubber, immediately on whose arrival we make a party at whist, and, as it is a rough night, and the cards will not lie on the cloth, we put the tricks in our pockets as we take them. At whist we remain with exemplary gravity, deducting a short time for tea and toast, until eleven o'clock, or thereabouts, when the captain comes down again, in a sou'wester hat tied under his chin in a pilot coat, making the ground wet where he stands. By this time the card-playing is over, and the bottles and glasses are again upon the table, and after an hour's pleasant conversation about the ship, the passengers, and things in general, the captain, who never goes to bed, and is never out of humour, turns up his coat-collar for the deck again, shakes hands all round, and goes laughing out into the weather as merrily as to a birthday party. As to daily news, there is no dearth of that commodity. This passenger is reported to have lost fourteen pounds at Vink and Un at the state at the saloon yesterday, and that passenger drinks his bottle of champagne every day, and how he does it, being only a clerk, nobody knows. The head engineer has distinctly said that there never was such times, meaning weather, and four good hands are ill, and have given in dead beat. Several berths are full of water, and all the cabins are leaky. The ship's cook, secretly swigging damaged whisky, has been found drunk, and has been played upon by the fire-engine until quite sober. All the stewards have fallen downstairs at various dinner-times, and go about with plasters in various places. The baker is ill, and so is the pastry-cook. A new man, horribly indisposed, has been required to fill the place of the letter officer, and has been propped and jammed up with empty casks in a little house upon deck, and commanded to roll out pie-crust, which he protests, being highly bilious, it is death to him to look at. News! A dozen murders on shore would lack the interest of these slight incidents at sea. Divided between our rubber and such topics as these, we were running, as we thought, into Halifax Harbour on the fifteenth night, with little wind and a bright moon. Indeed, we had made the light at its outer entrance, and put the pilot in charge, when suddenly the ship struck upon a bank of mud. An immediate rush on deck took place, of course. The sides were crowded in an instant, and for a few minutes 
we were in as lively a state of confusion as the greatest lover of disorder would desire to see. The passengers and guns and water-casks and other heavy matters, being all huddled together aft, however, to lighten her in the head, she was soon got off, and after some driving on towards an uncomfortable line of objects, whose vicinity had been announced very early in the disaster by a loud cry of, "'Break us ahead!' and much backing of paddles and heaving of the lead into a constantly decreasing depth of water, we dropped anchor into a strange, outlandish-looking nook, which nobody on board could recognise, although there was land all about us, and so close that we could plainly see the waving branches of the trees. It was strange enough in the silence of midnight, and the dead stillness that seemed to be created by the sudden and unexpected stoppage of the engine, which had been clanking and blasting in our ears incessantly for so many days, to watch the look of blank astonishment expressed in every face, beginning with the officers, tracing it through all the passengers, and descending to the very stokers and furnacemen, who emerged from below one by one, and clustered together in a smoky group about the hatchway of the engine-room, comparing notes in whispers. After throwing up a few rockets and firing signal-guns at the hope of being hailed from the land, or at least of seeing a light, but without any other sight or sound presenting itself, it was determined to send a boat on shore. It was amusing to observe how very kind some of the passengers were in volunteering to go ashore in the same boat, for the general good, of course, not by any means because they thought the ship in an unsafe position, or contemplated the possibility of her heeling over in case the tide were running out. Nor was it less amusing to remark how desperately unpopular the poor pilot became in one short minute. He had had his passage out from Liverpool, and during the whole voyage had been quite a notorious character as a teller of anecdotes and cracker of jokes. Yet here were the very men who had laughed the loudest at his jests, now flourishing their fists in his face, loading him with imprecations, and defying him to his teeth as a villain. The boat soon shoved off, with a lantern and sun-dry blue lights on board, and in less than an hour returned, the officer in command, bringing with him a tolerably tall young tree, which he had plucked up by the roots, to satisfy certain distrustful passengers, whose minds misgave them that they were to be imposed upon and shipwrecked, and who would on no other terms believe that he had been ashore, or had done anything but fraudulently row a little way into the mist, especially to deceive them and compass their debts. Our captain had foreseen, from the first, that we must be in a place called the Eastern Passage, and so we were. It was about the last place in the world in which we had any business or reason to be, but a sudden fog, and some error in the pilot's part of the cause. We were surrounded by banks and rocks and shoals of all kinds, but it happily drifted, it seemed, upon the only safe speck that was to be found thereabouts. Eased by this report, and by the assurance that the tide was past the ebb, we turned in at three o'clock in the morning. I was dressed about half-past nine next day, when the noise above hurried me on deck. When I had left it overnight it was dark, foggy, and damp, and there were bleak hills all round us. Now we were gliding down a smooth, broad stream, 
at the rate of eleven miles an hour, our colours flying gaily, our crew rigged out in their smartest clothes, our officers in uniform again, the sun shining as on a brilliant April day in England, the land stretched out on either side, streaked with light patches of snow, white wooden houses, people at their doors, telegraphs working, flags hoisted, wharves appearing, ships, quays crowded with people, distant noises, shouts, men and boys running down steep places towards the pier, all more bright and gay and fresh to our unused eyes than words can paint them. We came to a wharf paved with uplifted faces, got alongside, and were made fast after some shouting and straining cables, darted a score of us along the gangway, almost as soon as it was thrust out to meet us, and before it had reached the ship, and leapt upon the firm glad earth again. I suppose this Halifax would have appeared in Elysium, though it had been a curiosity of ugly dullness. But I carried away with me a most pleasant impression of the town and its inhabitants, and have preserved it to this hour. Nor was it without regret that I came home without having found an opportunity of returning thither, and once more shaking hands with the friends I made that day. It happened to be the opening of the Legislative Council and General Assembly, at which ceremonial the forms observed on the commencement of a new session of Parliament in England were so closely copied, and so gravely presented on a small scale, that it was like looking at Westminster through the wrong end of a telescope. The Governor, as Her Majesty's representative, delivered what may be called the speech from the throne— he said what he had to say he said what he had to say manfully and well. The military band outside the building struck up God save the Queen with great vigour before his excellency had quite finished. The people shouted, the inns rubbed their hands, the outs shook their heads. The government party said there never was such a good speech. The opposition declared there never was such a bad one. The Speaker and members of the House of Assembly withdrew from the bar to say a great deal among themselves and do a little, and in short everything went on and promised to go on, just as it does at home upon the like occasions. The town is built on the side of a hill, the highest point being commanded by a strong fortress not yet quite finished. Several streets of good breadth and appearance extend from its summit to the water-side, and are intersected by cross-streets running parallel with the river. The houses are chiefly of wood. The market is abundantly supplied, and provisions are exceedingly cheap. The weather being unusually mild at that time for the season of the year, there, were no there was no slaying, but there were plenty of but there were plenty of those vehicles in yards and by-places, and some of them, from the gorgeous quality of their decorations, might have gone on without alteration as triumphal cars in a melodrama at Astley's. The day was uncommonly fine, the air bracing and healthful, the whole aspect of the town cheerful, thriving, and industrious. We lay there seven hours to deliver and exchange the mails, at length, having collected all our bags and all our passengers, including two or three choice spirits, 
who, having indulged too freely in oysters and champagne, were found lying insensible on their backs in unfrequented streets. The engines were again put in motion, and we stood off for Boston. Encountering squally weather again in the Bay of, of Fundy, we tumbled and rolled about, as usual, all that night and all next day. On the next afternoon, that is to say, on Saturday, the 22nd of January, an American pilot boat came alongside, and soon afterwards the Britannia steam packet from Liverpool, eighteen days out, was telegraphed at Boston. The indescribable interest with which I strained my eyes as the first patches of American soil peeped like molehills from the green sea, and followed them as they swelled, by slow and almost imperceptible degrees, into a continuous line of coast, can hardly be exaggerated. A sharp keen wind blew dead against us, a hard frost prevailed on shore, and the cold was most severe. Yet the air was so intensely clear and dry and bright, that the temperature was not only endurable but delicious. Had I remained on deck staring about me until we came alongside the dock, and how, though I had as many eyes as Argus, I should have had them all wide open and all employed on new objects, are topics which I will not prolong this chapter to discuss. Neither will I more than hint at my foreign-like mistake in supposing that a party of most active persons who scrambled on board at the peril of their lives as we approached the wharf when newsmen, answering to that industrious class at home, whereas, despite the leathern wallets of news slung about the necks of some, and the broad sheets in the hands of all, they were editors, who boarded ships in person, as one gentleman in a worsted comforter informed me, because they liked the excitement of it. Suffice it in this place to say, that one of these invaders, with a ready courtesy for which I thank him here most gratefully, went on before to order rooms at the hotel, and that when I followed, as I soon did, I found myself rolling through the long passages with an involuntary imitation of the gait of Mr. T. P. Cook in a new nautical melodrama. "'Dinner, if you please,' said I to the waiter. "'When?' said the waiter. "'As quick as possible,' said I. "'Right away?' said the waiter. After a moment's hesitation, I answered, "'No,' at hazard. "'Not right away!' cried the waiter, with an amount of surprise that made me start. I looked at him doubtfully and returned, "'No. I would rather have it in this private room. I like it very much.' At this, I really thought the waiter must have gone out of his mind, as I believe he would have done, but— for the interposition of another man, who whispered in his ear, directly. "'Well, and that's a fact,' said the waiter, looking helplessly at me. "'Right away!' I saw now that right away and directly were one and the same thing, so I reversed my previous answer, and sat down to dinner in ten minutes afterwards, and a capital dinner it was. The hotel, a very excellent one, is called the Tremont House. It has more galleries, colonnades, piazzas, and, pa and passages than I can remember, or the reader would believe. End of chapter 2